This committee has shown you the testimony of dozens of Republican witnesses, those who served President Trump loyally for years. On Thursday night, the January 6th committee held another public hearing. And this might be the last one for at least a while. The case against Donald Trump in these hearings is not made by witnesses who were his political enemies. It is instead a series of confessions by Donald Trump's own appointees, his own friends, his own campaign officials, people who worked for him for years, and his own family. They have come forward and they have told the American people the truth. For more than a month, members of Congress have been calling witnesses and making the case that former President Trump played a critical role in the attack on the Capitol. We have heard some pretty significant revelations in these hearings. But I've been wondering, what should we take away from all of this? What's been at stake here? And how will these hearings shape our understanding of January 6th and of Trump going forward? So today, we're going to hear from two people that I really trust to wade through these complicated questions, Roz Helderman and Mariana Sotomayor. Roz is a political investigations reporter who we've turned to to explain all the dramas of the Trump presidency. And Mariana is a congressional reporter who's an expert on the personalities and leadership on Capitol Hill. She will be hosting the show today. So here's Mariana. Okay, Roz, I'm going to ask you the easiest question first. So now that we have a couple of hearings under our belt, looking back, what was the most startling moment for you? Which was maybe the craziest part where you're looking at the TV or hearing the audio and you're just like, whoa, that's new to me. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I thought the committee did really effectively was they told a story overall. They told the story of that time period you know, using the voices of people, some of whom had spoken before and some of whom had not. And so if you go back and look at each hearing, there was some new voice, some new email, some new text message that had not been out before and was very compelling. What percentage of the crowd is going to the Capitol? 100%. It has spread like wildfire that Pence has betrayed us. And everybody's marching on the Capitol, all million of us. And who on the staff did not want people to leave the Capitol? On the staff? In the White House, how about? I I can't think of anybody. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat, he thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. Here's what will be clear by the end of this hearing. President Trump did not fail to act during the 187 minutes between leaving the ellipse and telling the mob to go home. He chose not to act. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Mariana Sotomayor, in for Martine Powers. It's Friday, July 22nd. Today, the committee has wrapped up its first series of hearings that really pulled back the curtain of what Trump was doing before, during, and right after January 6th. I talked with Roz about what we know now and the questions we still have. So something that we have obviously known for a long time since the committee has started its investigating is 
they wanted to make sure they could prove that Trump did commit a crime on January 6th, that he had the intent to try and motivate a lot of these of his supporters who ended up going to the Capitol and, of course, threatening the life of the former vice president, Mike Pence, lives of lawmakers, aides who were on the Hill that day. And and this hearing on Thursday was the culmination for the time being of a number of hearings where they tried to lay out that argument. Do you think the committee actually made their case? I think that the committee has very clearly been trying to lay out the case that the former president was absolutely morally culpable for what happened on January 6th, that he was the instigator and it happened because of his actions and choices he made at various points after the November election. I do think that the committee is also, as you said, trying to present evidence that could be used to build the case that the president I should say the then president, committed a crime. That said, it's important to remember the responsibility of the committee. It is a congressional committee. It does not have the authority to charge a person with a crime. You know, our reporting has consistently shown that there is some division within the committee over the issue of whether or not to issue a formal criminal referral to the Justice Department at the end of this process. But my own view is that it doesn't actually much matter The Justice Department does not need a criminal referral from Congress to conduct a criminal investigation, nor do they have to act on a criminal referral if they receive one. We know, uh, the Attorney General has said so publicly, we know that the Justice Department is watching this process carefully. They are looking to the evidence that Congress has gathered to help inform the investigations they have underway. So, A criminal referral might be an important political statement for the committee to go on record saying they believe the evidence they have gathered is sufficient to charge the president with a crime, but that isn't their responsibility. And at the end of the day, it may not much matter whether or not they take that step from a practical standpoint. So that is the bigger picture, kind of long-term goal potentially for this committee. What was the goal of yesterday's hearing? We know that they wanted to, of course, look at those 187 minutes on January 6th that were very important from the time that Trump was on the ellipse, gave his speech to when a video was put on Twitter of him telling his supporters to go home. What did we learn? Right. Well, you know, the previous hearings up until last night, mostly for the most part, focused on the choices that Donald Trump made that led us to January 6th. Yesterday focused exclusively on the day itself to send the message of Trump's dereliction of duty, that the Capitol was under attack and the commander in chief was nowhere to be found. In fact, he was in the dining room of the White House uh, watching events on television. With some, there is evidence, happiness, pleasure that the uh, rioters were accomplishing the goal he had set out, which was to delay the certification of Joe Biden as his successor. I would say there were two real big reveals out of the hearing on Thursday night. One was just how resistant Donald Trump was to the statements he ultimately did put out calling for the rioters to go home. We had known that he tweeted at 2.38 p.m., a tweet telling rioters to stay peaceful. But one thing we learned last night was that he didn't even want to say that. We were in a room full of people, but people weren't paying attention. And so she looked directly at me and in a hushed tone shared with me that the president did not want to include any sort of mention of peace in that tweet and that 
It took some convincing on their part, those who were in the room. That he had to be persuaded by his daughter, Ivanka Trump, to even use the word peaceful. And she said that there was a back and forth um, going over different phrases to find something that he was comfortable with. And it wasn't until Ivanka Trump suggested the phrase, stay peaceful, that he finally agreed to include it. Then we know that when he finally does the video at 417, which does include the key phrase, go home, that his staff had prepared remarks for him to say, and and they would have much more forcefully told people to leave the capital region, uh, but he refused to use them. He spoke off the cuff. The other big thing that we saw that was new was this really compelling, uh, disturbing audio uh, that we got from the Secret Service, specifically Mike Pence's uh, Secret Service detail. Uh, Members of the BP detail at this time were starting to fear for their own lives. Um, There were a lot of, there was a lot of yelling, um, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of very personal calls um, over the radio. So uh, it was disturbing. I don't like talking about it. We have seen these silent videos of the Secret Service evacuating Mike Pence repeatedly, but now we had audio to go along with it, and you could hear the, the fear in their voices as they try to tell their colleagues that the riders are, are feet from them, and that if they don't evacuate Mike Pence right now, they may not be able to get him out. Uh, there were calls to um, say goodbye to family members, so on and so forth. It was getting... For, for whatever the reason was on the ground, the BP detail thought that this was about to get very ugly. I was in the hearing room when they were playing that moment, the moment where you could f- see, almost feel the exasperation that some of these agents had trying to figure out if they could evacuate the former vice president. And there was just an intensity in the room. You could hear a pin drop. We also heard from General Mark Milley, who the committee has talked to. And he, of course, is chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he essentially said that Pence was giving orders to the military to clear the Capitol and stop the violence. And he was saying at the same time he was hearing from Trump, we need to change this narrative that Pence is in command, that that the vice president is is the one who's taking charge and leading the country. It should be me. He said, um, we have we have to kill the narrative that the vice president is making all the decisions. Uh, we need to establish the narrative that, um, you know, that the president is still in charge and that things are steady or stable or what's that thing. I immediately interpret that as politics, politics, politics. Uh, red flag for me personally, no action, but I remember it distinctly. Um, and and uh, I don't do political narratives. What does that show, especially at this time where, you know, we're, it seems like, there is a a riff potentially within the Republican Party and especially between these two former leaders who were working together at a time and now have January 6th as, as this big splintering for their relationship. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things we we had known, but we learned, we have learned much more over the course of the hearings was just how much danger Mike Pence was in that day and just how little Donald Trump 
cared. There was some testimony that we heard last night uh, referenced by the committee that suggested that at the end of the day, after everything that had happened as Donald Trump was returning to the residence, the thing he was talking about was not the violence, was not the rattling of democracy, was not all these things that most of the country was concerned about in those hours. It was that he was still talking about how Mike Pence had let him down. Pence has made some efforts to reach out to to Trump and to somewhat repair that relationship. But the hearings have really put a bright spotlight on just how broken it had been on January 6th. So you had mentioned how Trump was unwilling to say the word peace in some of his tweets, and that really irritated a number of former Trump supporters who were working in the White House. A couple of people quit after January 6th, we all remember. Um, And we did learn through Sarah Matthews' testimony, she, of course, was the deputy White House press secretary at the time, just how annoyed, mad, angry people were that the president could not be moved on this. Do you think that her testimony will change minds? How damning was it? Well, that was really compelling testimony. Um, She is the one who testified, understanding that about his resistance to saying the word peace. Uh, She described how she had been brought into the White House by the press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, who she had worked with on the Trump campaign. She was quite close to her. He puts out this tweet at 2.38 saying, stay peaceful. And McEnany comes back to the press office and, you know, asks Sarah Matthews if she has seen it. And Sarah Matthews says, that is not enough. I became visibly frustrated, and my colleagues were well aware of that. And I couldn't believe that we were arguing over this in the middle of the West Wing, talking about the politics of a tweet, being concerned with handing the media a win when we had just watched all of that violence unfold at the Capitol. And so I motioned up at the TV, and I said, do you think it looks like we're effing winning? Because I don't think it does. And I again reiterated that I thought that the president needed to condemn the violence because it didn't matter if it was coming from the left or the right, that you should condemn violence 100 percent of the time. Sarah Matthews ends up resigning that day because she is uh, so disgusted by what has gone on. So did the other witness who testified uh, Thursday night, Matt Pottinger. He testified that he decided to resign a few minutes earlier uh, when Donald Trump tweeted calling Mike Pence a coward, put a new target on his back, and, and Pottinger said that that was it for him. He decided there and then to resign. So we've talked about how there was new video, new audio, but I think one of the most lasting images and and, and videos is the day after January 6th, Trump was trying to, or at least I should say the White House was trying to make sure that Trump could put a message out there again, kind of condemning January 6th, um, a message to his supporters. Um, I wanted to play a little bit of that video I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. You do not represent our movement. You do not represent our country. And if you broke the law, you can't say that. I'm not gonna, you, I already said you will pay. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defied the seat of justice. It's defiled, right? See, I can't see it very well. Okay, I'll, I'll do this. I'm going to do this. Let's go. You, of course, hear a very frustrated president there. I recommend if you haven't seen the video, of course, you just heard a little bit of it, um, to watch it because you do see him also physically 
hit his hand against the lectern where he's trying to speak. You can see him rolling his eyes. You really get this sense of exasperation in some ways. Um, Roz, I wanted to hear from you. What was your reaction as you were watching that in real time? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. Like, it's really a visual thing as much as it is an audio one. And you could just see it in his body language. He would wave his hands. He would start to complain about the language. He would try to rewrite it on the spot. And so this is kind of textbook Donald Trump for a speech he did not want to deliver and was being pressured to give uh, by his aides. One thing is we learned uh, that his staff had drafted remarks for him to do it in the morning, but he could not be persuaded to do it until nighttime. So many hours went by. He was very resistant. He only agreed amidst a lot of conversation within the White House that his own cabinet might be exploring using the 25th Amendment to remove him from office. So finally, he agrees to go out and record that video. And then in this really revealing moment, he reads the line that has been written that, that begins, the election is over. Congress has certified, and he does not like it. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election is over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election is over, okay? And he ultimately agrees to say that Congress has certified Joe Biden as the victor, but he will not say the words, the election is over. Have we heard from former President Trump since that hearing? Uh, yeah, I believe that he posted a long series of notes on Truth Social on the unselect committee, as he calls it, insulting them, saying this isn't true, saying they're refusing to talk about the election and how it was stolen, which is, of course, not true. I believe he might have called Liz Cheney a sanctimonious loser. So, you know, th this is definitely getting under his skin. Donald Trump is not someone who hides it when that happens. Uh, he is watching these hearings and he does not like them. The hearings are over for now. But the committee is still interviewing potential new witnesses. After the break, we'll talk about the other evidence the committee hopes to gather. We'll be right back. You know, the question I think that everyone has who's actually been paying attention to this is, will any of this matter? Will this change any hearts and minds at all? Have we seen any of that happening already? So, you know, I'm always hesitant to get into conversations like that because it relies on predicting the future. And I think we as journalists are especially bad at that. Yes. Uh, there is some <laughs> polling. Yeah, there, there is some polling that shows that it has moved some people. We know that anecdotally, there are some folks who conduct focus groups, who have uh, done focus groups with Trump supporters, who have complained about these hearings, say they're unfair, and yet nevertheless are starting to say they would prefer someone else. We also know that the ratings have been pretty high for them for a news event. Uh, a lot of people are watching. So, you know, I think it's too early to offer the cynical view that we often offer in Washington, that nothing matters, that uh, no one is listening and no one cares about this. I also think it's a little too early to conclude the opposite. So Thursday's hearing was obviously billed as the last committee hearing of the summer. What should we expect to happen next? 
Uh, yeah, the committee has now said that they expect to do more hearings in September. Uh, so they'll take the normal congressional August recess, go home in campaign, one imagines, for their reelections, and then come back and do some hearings in September. I know they have some topics of interest that haven't gotten that much attention at the previous hearings that we might hear about in September, uh, maybe more about Michael Flynn and Roger Stone and Steve Bannon, uh, maybe more about the fundraising efforts that were going on from Republican and Republican allied groups in this time period, people who might have been promoting the stop the steal myth out of uh, financial motive. But I also think that the committee has been quite clear that the hearings created the condition to get new evidence, to have new people come forward. We know Pat Cipollone, for instance, uh, only agreed to a transcribed interview after these hearings began. We heard from some witnesses last night who apparently uh, were new as of the start of this process. So I don't know that the committee has entirely settled on what they're going to say in September, in part because uh, they are still gathering and analyzing new evidence. So it may well be we hear in September about things that the committee will only be receiving in the coming weeks. So there's only so much more to learn, and we've already learned so much. You know, sometimes it feels like the information dump from this committee can run together. Um, that being said, we actually have a really great quiz up at thewashingtonpost.com that tests your knowledge on who said what during these hearings. I took it yesterday, and I got a 7 out of 10. Um, I was actually surprised by mm. some of them, and I had no <laughs> idea. So we do a really good job to see if we can stump you. Um, are you ready? Oh, you're quizzing me. I am quizzing you. Okay. It's happening. Right, well, I'll give it a try. <laughs> All right. Who said this? Quote, I thought, boy, if he really believes this stuff, he has, you know, lost contact with. Yep. There you go. I didn't even have to go through <laughs> the list. You know your stuff. How about this one? There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. That was Liz Cheney at the opening hearing. Amazing. Look, I was going to read A I mean, through D, this, and you I, know. They do pay me to do this, so. Yes, yes. Well, thank you for reporting on all of that, and I really appreciate you joining me on this Friday to talk about all things January 6th and breaking down all those hearings. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Roz Helderman is a political investigations reporter for The Post. At least one person in Trump's inner circle can now face prison time for refusing to cooperate with the January 6th committee. On Friday afternoon, Steve Bannon, a former advisor to Trump, was found guilty of contempt of Congress. He was charged with two misdemeanors. In October of last year, Bannon failed to appear for a deposition. And he also refused to provide records before the subpoena deadline. Both counts carry maximum sentences of one year in prison. Bannon is expected back in court for sentencing later this fall. This story was produced by Charlotte Freeland and mixed by Renny Svernowski. It was edited by Rena Flores, our supervising senior producer. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Ted Muldoon is our senior producer. Our editor is Alexis Diao. Arjun Singh, Charlotte Freeland, Jordan Marie Smith, Ariel Plotnik, and Renny Svernovsky are producers. Sabby Robinson and Emma Telkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. Our intern is Natalie Bettendorf. The post director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Mariana Sotomayor. Martine Powers will be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs> 